Hey friends, Christine here. I wanted to share a special announcement with you before today's podcast interview begins. Now through November 30th, 2019, I am hosting a 30 book giveaway on my website. The Lord has blessed me with the chance to collaborate with the publishers of almost all the Hope and Help Project guests I've interviewed this year, and the result being three different book bundles of 10 titles each that are going to be delivered to three different winners. I am so grateful for the generosity of the publishers who have agreed to align with my mission of providing gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, you can enter to win a bundle of your very own by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The giveaway information is at the top of the page, and you can click on the button there to find out all about the details. The three winners will be announced on December 1st, 2019. Please help me spread the word about this really incredible giveaway. By doing so, you also help to raise awareness about this podcast, as well as the helpful books that our podcast guests have written. You can also access the giveaway link by scrolling down to the show notes and clicking the link listed there. Thank you so much for your continued support, friends, and enjoy the show. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm really glad you're here to join in on today's conversation with Jonathan Hayashi. Today we'll be talking about Jonathan's book, Ordinary Radicals, A Return to Christ-Centered Discipleship, to learn how the gospel of Jesus Christ informs the way we foster genuine, mission-minded Christian community within the context of a local church. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Jonathan Hayashi completed his bachelor's in pastoral ministry at Moody Bible Institute in 2012 and his master's degree in organizational leadership at Moody Theological Seminary in Chicago in 2014. He is currently a doctoral student studying biblical counseling at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Jonathan and his wife Kennedy live with their two daughters in the greater St. Louis area. Hey, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Before we get started on our conversation about discipleship today, I wonder if you would take a few minutes to share about your testimony. I was so encouraged by learning of your journey to faith despite a variety of really painful seasons in your life, and I would love to invite you to share that story with the listeners. Yeah, so I kind of grew up in an interesting home, I would say. Uh, My father was you know, a very dogmatic atheist, yet my mother was a, just a devout believer. And uh, I remember just going through just difficulty of questioning my faith and just identity and so forth. And, you know, I turned to the things of the world. And, you know, really by age 12, I was living a, just a rebellious, sinful life. And by, uh, I think uh, around age 15, I was really caught by the police. So I was uh, handcuffed in the back of the police vehicle you know, just just a really wretched, wicked, <laughs> disobedient sinner. And uh, during that time, kind of had an encounter with the Lord. It wasn't like an audible voice, but just knew the Lord was kind of tapping on my heart. 
So I remember standing in front of the principal in the principal's office and he's like, you know, we don't want students such as you. And I remember saying, you know, I want to seek the Lord. So I got, I got kicked out of school. I left the girl I was living with and uh, I became a carpenter at age 15 with any hope of Jesus. Fast forward September, that was the year I got caught by the police in 16. My mother sent me to this missionary home in Tokyo area. Mm. And I met this pastor who shared the gospel to me. And my life was radically transformed by the good news of the gospel. And just everything changed when Jesus came into my life. Nothing was ever the same anymore. So yeah, ever since, I guess that's history. And you know, the Lord has just been so good and faithful. And I cannot you know, thank him enough and give him praise for that. Well, there seems to be a significant amount of past hurts you've had to work through in your life. Would you share with us what that process has looked like for you in your early days as a Christian? Maybe sharing some of the ways God has brought healing to those painful areas and how your being discipled by others has played a part in that role? Yeah, I think the major difficulty was going to a Christian high school. You know, I was just a new believer and uh, I was in a new place, just really hungry and thirsty for God's word. Uh, yet I had these men who were father figures in my life. My father was just very absent. And I would say, you know, one of the most hurtful thing was just my father was just very abusive. So, um, you know, I can recall one of the times where my father was just very furious with my brother and kind of grabbed him by the hair and dragged him all over the floor and you know, threw him from the second floor to the first floor. Mm. And that was that was a pretty regular, regular thing, just seeing a lot of just hurt and pain. But, you know, God wasn't only my spiritual father, but God placed these father figures in my life and they mentored me and taught me, Jonathan, this is how you read the word. And Jonathan, this is how you pray. This is what the scripture means. And, uh, you know, I was just so thankful leaving like a gang life background. And then the Lord placed these incredible men in the local church and, and missionaries in my life that really was instrumental in my life. And, uh, learning how to trust in the Lord, to cast my anxiety onto Him, and the Lord working through those you know, pain and suffering and trials that I had early in life. You have a clear passion for faithful Christian discipleship, so much so that you've penned a book on the topic entitled Ordinary Radicals, A Return to Christ-Centered Discipleship. Now, this topic might not seem like something my listeners would expect to hear on the show. They might be wondering why a conversation about discipleship is relevant to facing life's challenging problems. Before we dive more deeply into that, will you tell me what is the church getting wrong about its approach to discipleship these days? And why do you think some people view it as an unnecessary component to faithful Christian living? I think one of the things that so often that I you know, get a misunderstanding when we talk about discipleship is that people think discipleship is a program we launch rather than the lifestyle we embrace. And at the heart of discipleship, the root of the issue is the gospel. And I think one of the things I said in the book is the gospel you believe is going to determine what kind of disciple you become. Right. So at the heart of it, we're asking what the gospel is, because if you know, either the gospel is 100% true or it's 100% false. If it's 100% true, it radically transforms our lives. And another thing, you know, people think it's oxymoron, ordinary radicals, you know, because there's a radical measure we take root radish you know that's where the word, mm. word comes from but god entrusts the gospel to us very ordinary uneducated men as acts you know 413 would say so you know what what does it mean the gospel coming to us because the gospel came to us because it was headed to somebody else 
the gospel wasn't something to like a cistern to be hoard, but a funnel to be let out in and through our lives uh, where the gospel takes root in our turning our everyday conversation into a gospel conversation. So that that was my hope and prayer that you know ordinary people begin to embrace the gospel in a radical measure, taking the extraordinary message of the gospel to their community and to the nations. You just mentioned a quote that was really convicting to me. You write in your book that the gospel you believe determines what kind of disciple you become. I thought that was a really great way of exposing how our beliefs reveal our heart. It's so relevant to how we address life's challenging problems because facing tribulations of any kind serves as an opportunity for our hearts to become exposed. Clearly, the quality of our discipleship will be revealed most plainly when we suffer. Would you explain some of the different types of false discipleship beliefs and perhaps outline some of the ways these wayward approaches to Christian living are unscriptural? You know, there's a lot of gospel out there. And I think, again, the health of the church is determined by the hermeneutic of the gospel. One of the things I mentioned, you know, it's from a book by Bill Hull, Conversion and Discipleship, which a lot of times we divorce conversion from a discipleship. And so often we think the gospel is only for salvific salvation, which means, you know, death unto life, darkness unto light, blindness unto sight. Certainly the gospel is that, and we ought to celebrate that. But that is not the end of the gospel. The gospel came to us and to transform our lives into the image of his son, as Romans 12, 2 says, right? So, uh, again, one of the things I would say, as Robbie Gallaty you know, he says, what happens then in the church, baptism becomes the finish line rather than a starting line. So mm-hmm. so again, you know, what kind of gospel are we preaching? Are we preaching just a forgiveness only gospel that you got your fire insurance, you went through the ABC, admit, believe and confess, and it's done. Or are you believing such as a consumer mentality gospel that, you know, we are a passive spectator rather than an active participant in the mission and the message of the gospel in our community. And there's many more like a legalistic gospel, prosperity gospel, uh, a left-wing liberal gospel that people believe uh, rather than kingdom gospel, which the scripture calls us to. And I think when we drift away just from understanding truly, not just believing, but embracing the gospel, uh, that's when we drift away. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing. And I think the book of Hebrews warns us the danger of drifting away from the salvation that's been entrusted by the power of the gospel. Well, there's a tendency for today's American Christians to bend towards the consumer gospel, where, as you write, quote, people are basically uninterested in anything that doesn't accrue to their own benefit. Wow, that is a convicting statement for sure. I think in a broader sense, this lukewarm approach to Christianity permeates not only the sentiment towards discipleship, but throughout all areas of a churchgoer's life. So in what ways does a consumeristic attitude towards Jesus actually cheapen God's grace? And why will such beliefs about the gospel end up harming us when we do face difficult times? Yeah, consumer gospel is its something that we we swim and we breathe and we eat and we drink. That is the message of our culture, right? And I think uh, one of the things that a true biblical Christianity does not say, God loves me, period. Like I'm the object of the faith. Mm-hmm. True biblical Christianity says, God loves you, therefore, 
make his kingdom, make his glory, make his name known amongst the nation, period. See, God is the object of our story. And and we need to fight against uh, that message that would be exchanged for a lie, uh, which is no gospel at all. A true gospel is all about the glory of God. And I think that's what Westminster Catechism says as well, right? What is the chief end of man? What is the chief goal of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When we begin to live as a church, as Christians, as believers, as the end, that it's all about me, then that's where the mission ends. That's where discipleship ends. That's when growth ends and that we become within a consumer-centered mentality of an inward-focused church rather than an outward advancing the gospel, taking the good news of the kingdom-minded mentality of, you know, advancing through discipleship uh, what the church is really called to do. Then what happens, we become more a dying church rather than a thriving church. Building on that then, if somebody is living into one of these false gospels, you know, let's let's just talk about like, you know, the prosperity gospel. So thinking that, you know, somewhere in the scriptures, it, these are there are promises that God wants me to be rich and healthy and fruitful and all of these wonderful blessings. And that if I'm not getting those things in my life, I must be doing something wrong. If we take that gospel and really try to needle work it into the life of a believer who's actually facing difficult times. What what are the spiritual ramifications of that belief in terms of how is somebody going to be able to respond biblically to a difficult time if that's the gospel they believe? Yeah, the false gospel, again, again, gospel, the word itself means good news. But if it's not the good news of the gospel of Jesus, then that that's a tragedy, isn't it? You know, for whoever's going through testing, trials, tribulation of life. And the question is, because there's nowhere to turn, they turn inward and try to find meaning within, which is a very postmodern uh, idea, right? Mm-hmm. It's a postmodern individualistic consumer mentality culture that forgets not only God, but also forgets the church. And that's the majority of our churchgoers as well. Rather than looking to the, you know, again, it's a bit more heady, but objective reality of the revelation of God's word, who God is. Of theology that we understand, we become an intuition of subjective reality. Of I just don't feel this way. I feel, I feel like God has abandoned me. I feel like God has forsaken me. Mm-hmm. They begin to exegete God based on their circumstance, which is a very, very poor way. It's a downhill way that begins to breed into negativity rather than looking to God vertically and looking to Him, casting anxiety to Him because He cares for us, as Peter says. God has a hard time renewing our mind in that because we are so focused in ourselves and we become puffed up and prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. It, it isn't, you know, and we don't see that at all. Like God loves you based on your, you know, your health, wealth, and comfort. Well, if that's the case, I guess God hated the apostle Paul because nothing in his life was marked by health, wealth, and comfort. In reality, when we look at Paul or even Christ's life, there's a lot of lamentation, Psalms, majority is lamentation struggling through, you know, with understanding or or head and a heart and our hands or, you know, some theologians say cognition, volition, affection, the volition of life. And so all that needs to be tied in together as we holistically understand, you know, who God is, who we are and our life, you know, be, belief always ties into behavior or perception always ties into our practice. 
theology ties into our methodology. So when, when we don't properly do that, we have abandoned the gospel, we have forgotten the gospel, Jesus is not part of the conversation, the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and our minds and our hearts is not there. When That's where we begin to you know, really lose hope and you know, go through a downward spiral. And that really seems to be you know, one of the main reasons why God gave us a, such a good gift as a command to disciple other people and to be in a community of believers. Because like you said, all those things that we could be having wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, you know, putting our trust into a false gospel, a lot of times we can't fix those things on our own. We need truth coming from outside of us to help shape and mold and even redeem and renew and restore some of these beliefs that maybe have gone off track because of whatever reasons, putting our faith in money or putting our faith in our appearance or our, our performance. And so really, I think it's just important to note here for someone who might be wondering why we're talking about discipleship is because discipleship is how you face life's problems when they come at you and you don't know what the right way to respond is, is being in those relationships with other believers who can help carry your burden and can give you wise biblical advice and comforts from the scriptures instead of being led astray by some, you know, theology that teaches you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps if you just try harder and pray more and do X, Y, Z, and then you can manufacture some kind of desired effect in time. So I really appreciated the comment you made about discipleship not being motivated by a strategy but by an adoration of Christ. We live in a how-to society where if we have a problem or we want to achieve a goal, we can simply search online and find a video or a formula or a recipe, follow the steps, and have a reasonable expectation of success. Why is the process of discipleship, especially as it pertains to its importance for sanctification, not a simplistic strategy implementation. What are some of the dangers of viewing it that way? Yeah, I think I think this is the greatest danger, actually, and one, one of the greatest danger in 21st century evangelicalism that we see a lot of our Christian bookstores, and it's a lot of self-help books. And a lot of self-help books is all about just strategy, a program, or, you know, go through these ABCs and you will be happy. That's just not the antidote we have often. And I think that God has given us two things to us this day, we, and you know, obviously Christ, but he has given us his word through the sufficiency of scripture, and then his bride, his church, which God uses the community of believers through fellowship, discipleship. There's a lot of one another ministry. You know, we could talk about that too. There's about 35 of those that he has commanded us to do with, you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the covenant body. Uh, not just the capital C universal church, but a local body of a local church to be committed. And that's where we bear one another. That's where we spur on one another. That's where we encourage one another. That's where we speak truth and love for one another. And that's how we really begin to live in sanctification. And one of the things I need to talk about, again, is that sanctification, too, is not something that we only work. It's, it's, it's first God's grace causing us within our hearts by Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of the Father. So it's very Trinitarian, as actually we see. But, but it's not just a monergistic, like just one-sided. There's, there's mm -hmm. a synergistic side of like Philippians says what? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a sense that God expects us to exert effort in this right. progressive sanctification, that, that we are need to 
hold to live. So, so again, I think sometimes with strategies or implementation or do that, oh, let me fix you with, you know, a behavioral modification kind of standpoint. If God doesn't transform our hearts through the word of God by God informing our minds, then he will not, or lifestyle doesn't change. It's not the other way around. Does it make sense? It's, it's not just doing, then somehow we know that God loves us by, by God filling our mind. Actually, as the Puritans, you know, uh, John Owen and Richard Baxter, as they struggled through suffering, what did they do? They, they said, let's meditate on God's scripture that will warm our affection that will transform our behaviors in our lives. And and I think that's the missing component. Sometimes we try to go the other way around. Let's change our doing so we know the God uh, that 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 or being changes so that God we know that God loves us. No, we we must know God unconditionally loves us and we are bought with a price who or being our identity is and then begins to change our lifestyle and who we are, how we feel, do and so forth. And I think somehow we compartmentalize and have a false dichotomy of understanding of what man is. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's a poor understanding. It's it's not like that. It's a very holistic way of seeing how these component lives. And it's not just theology. Uh, it's not it's not just you know who we are or you know some people say anthropology, um, you know psychology of, of our soul and you know in our lifestyle. Um, it's not like that. I think it's it's a very holistic way. And God causing that sanctification uh, in and through our lives. You know, again, the end goal is the image of Christ, that the word of God, the word of Christ, John 1.14, begin to trans- uh, conform us more in the likeness of Christ. I really appreciate you made that point just now because it is so true that especially if we are battling things in our lives like, you know, habitual sins or particular hangups that we're trying to overcome, we can forget that sanctification is not only about moral effort like you were talking about. We are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, but there is also what Heath Lambert would describe as divine enablement. So it's moral effort matched with God's divine enablement that produces this Christ-like growth during the life of a believer, the entire lifespan. And I think sometimes, I know for me personally, I have gotten you know, I, I invest a lot of time into this moral effort component. And then when the change isn't happening as fast as I want, I will get upset or depressed or respond in some way, maybe even angry. Like, why am I not changing? I'm doing all this effort and my heart is still struggling in this way. And, and so we can forget in our impatience that the divine enablement is for a lifetime mm-hmm. and that these processes take a lifetime. And so I just, I love that you, you made that point because I think it is really important, you know, so not to put all of our eggs in the moral effort basket, but at the same time, not to put all our eggs into the divine enablement basket. Where we're like, well, I don't really need to do too much because God's going to, you know, bring it to fruition. Dallas Willard has a wonderful quote that I love to remember. And it goes something like grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so God gives us grace to change, but it's not that we don't give effort. It's just that he doesn't want to us to feel like we need to be earning things, but we do need to pour in, you know, the moral effort to the degree that he enables us to do so uh, in faithful obedience. So thank you for, for bringing that up. 
sometimes we resist entering into a discipleship relationship with someone at church because we're afraid to become known by someone else. Maybe we are worried about what accountability might look like, or we're ashamed about some of the things that we struggle with, and it just kind of makes it uncomfortable to be vulnerable with other people. Yet the scriptures are clear that we are not meant to live the Christian life alone. Can you expand on the importance of living in Christian community in close proximity with other believers who can speak into our lives, especially when it comes to times of suffering or struggling? I'm a firm believer that, you know, I think Mark Dever uh, from Nine Marks Ministry said, we believe that the local church is God's focal point of displaying the glory to the nation. Our vision is simple, a church that reflects the character of God. And in how do we know the character of God? We know it through, how do we know the attribute of God? It's, it's through his word. And we need the Holy Spirit's help to understand discipleship at the end of the day. It's a Christ-centered church-based, filled and driven by the gospel, compassionately loving, culturally informed one another ministry. I think uh, Robert Kellerman said that in one of his books. And I would firmly say, I believe it is impossible for a believer to grow without the church. Uh, There's a saying that says, uh, it takes a village to raise a child. I believe it takes a church to raise a Christian. And the role of the church, uh, that's that's where the manifold wisdom of God has been entrusted, as, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. And that, that authenticity and accountability needs to happen. I think, again, our culture wants to privatize our lives, right? It's just kind of just me and Jesus. I think I said it earlier, but just a very postmodern consumer individualist and mentality culture says, I can have one-on-one with Jesus without you. Like, I love Jesus, but I don't love the bride. I just think that's it's possible scripturally. In fact, I don't think nowhere in scripture says you can be a Christian without being part of a local church. I just, I haven't found it yet. It's always gathering the saints when we think even the great commandment, Matthew 22 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We think about the great commission, think about discipleship. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When a church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission, that actually creates a great church because discipleship is the center of it. We're simply returning to a Christ-centered mentality of what the discipleship is all about. So again, going back to your question, we need cross proximity in order to really grow. I mean, I think that's what Matthew 18 is about. We say church discipline, we barely see that within churches. There seems like a poor understanding of what church covenant relationship even is part of it because there's a confusion of what baptism is and and a confusion of what the gospel is all about, mm-hmm. uh, which which we need we need help as as church to help and grow in that uh, as we suffer and struggle as we walk alongside with you know other believers. I'm so thankful that early on in my Christian walk, I was taught by my local church's women's ministry what it meant to become a disciple of Christ. And their explanation matches really well with what you've said in your book, that disciples make disciples who make disciples. There is this command of the Great Commission in the New Testament, which makes it clear that disciple making is not merely to facilitate our transformation in Christ, but it's for the building of God's kingdom. And this may sound like a really overwhelming idea, or perhaps maybe something that only the experts can do, but not us lay people because we have to work or take care of kids or tend to other commitments. How can someone implement the Great Commission in their own lives without necessarily going on mission to foreign lands? Is there a way to make disciples in our own context, whatever our ability and availability might be? That is a resounding 
Yes. I mean, when we even look at the disciples, I mean, they were in the brightest and greatest. We look at Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus called the disciples. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. These were fishermen. I mean, when we look at the first century, second temple Judaism of that period, what we know is that fishermen were not the brightest and greatest. They dropped out of rabbinic school. And you know, we can kind of talk more about that in the context of that time. But Jesus, you know, we would think like, Jesus, you should have chosen, you know, much brighter, greater people like, you know, in today's context would be, you know, maybe politicians, maybe they're the major sports players like Michael Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we think if we can win those, we're going to win the nation. We're going to win the world. Where in reality, it's so encouraging for me that God chose really <laughs> ordinary people. And he entrusted that. And that's how God chose to turn the world upside down. I mean, it's incredible. We see their growing of disciples, you know, you know, 120 by Acts. And then later on, you know, by, you know, 380 or so, uh, 6 million Christians. And then Constantine, I mean, it became a Christian nation. But Jesus chose not the big crowd. He just chose 12 disciples. Uh, Dallas Willard, I think he said nine-tenths of Jesus' time was spent with the disciples, his earthly ministry. And then beyond that, he had the cell group, which was the triad, Peter, John, James. Mm-hmm. And and it's just so encouraging because – and he didn't have – Jesus never had a classroom if we think about it. Jesus didn't really have a church building. He kind of went through life teaching. You know, he said – he looks and says, fox have a hole, birds have a nest, but the son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He's walking through his Galilean ministry, and then, then he comes to a fig tree. He curses it, and you know he kind of makes a lesson out of it. Um, somehow, I think we think I can only make influence once I get a position, once I'm an ordained clergy, or once I graduate Bible college, once I have seminary degree, I know Greek and Hebrew. The reality is that when we look at the Scripture— and even Jesus in the gospel accounts ministry, he didn't really go like the traditional model that we are in today. I believe God entrusts us right now, right here in our context, in our community, in or subdivisions or colleagues or associates. Select one, maybe select two or three and invest your life, pray for them and reach and make these gospel conversations. And and actually it's not that hard. I think so often we we think that you know we need to be on a pedestal, but actually God often picks his people from the pit and it's obedience actually in following that call and faithfully walking on a continual basis on a day-to-day basis. And I think it would be amazed and awestruck and marvel what God does by calling us and faithfully walking after his leading, saying this is the way walking it in the task of disciple making and discipleship. Well, if you don't mind me asking, to before we close out on our conversation, what would that look like practically speaking? So let's say that there's somebody listening and they're like, you know, I don't really know what does that look like. I don't have a church program I can be a leader of. What does it look like for me to make a disciple in my everyday life? Is there a way you can break that down, you know, practically speaking, that maybe isn't so scary and overwhelming, but actually reveals how simple it could really be? Yeah, I remember talking to a young youth. He said, you know, I want to make disciples, but I don't have the blessing from the church or the pastor. And I said, well, you you really don't need it. Jesus has gave you permission. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. And then therefore, 
go make disciples. And, you know, th that's a call for all. It's a costly commitment, but it's indeed a call for all. And I think in practical ways, it's, it's really in the, you know, living rooms, you know, mm -hmm. as we have people in our homes, <laughs> uh, we, we speak about the gospel, we intentionally, you know, I, I love biblical counseling. Um, uh, again, Robert Kellerman said, dis, uh, you know, dis, uh, biblical counseling by definition is a focused process of discipleship. That's not what we often think about biblical counseling. We think it's the licensed, you know, certified therapist. Well, we have a license by Christ's commission, and that's a stamp of us giving permission to go uh, with the boldness uh, because who Jesus, Jesus is along us. He would say he would never leave us nor forsake us. I will be with you to the ends of the earth. Uh, as he gives us the perikoneos, the Holy Spirit, as John chapter 14 and 15 says. Uh, so, so that looks like, you know, for me, it's over a coffee, you know, <laughs> at a coffee shop. You know, everybody wants to have coffee. I mean, who doesn't <laughs> want to? And I began to ask questions. Tell me about your passions and your grief. And, you know, people totally is open. Like, that's what Instagram is. They want to tell their stories instantaneously. And who doesn't want to tell their passion and their stories? And that's where we turn in and tie in the gospel and we share our passions and our lives and so forth and encouraging and new believers and expecting that uh, and saying that even, you know, this is what God expects us, just like a biological development, just like, you know, God doesn't expect us to be young adults all our lives or just spiritual babes or children. God expects us to be spiritual parents and to begin to intentionally reproduce so that we can introduce one day to our spiritual children and grandchildren, spiritual great-grandchildren, and uh, and putting that forward as like a vision casting and helping people in their homes, in their children, helping them champion uh, in their homes for dad and moms, you know, for students. That looks like, you know, you're, if you're in a soccer team or in the football team, um, you're intentionally reaching, you know, not, not so that you can stand in the platform or a pulpit, you know. Uh, that's not what it is. Uh, Daniel M. in his book, uh, No Silver Bullet, said, being a disciple maker is not being a sage on the stage. It's being the guide on the side. Mm -hmm. And that necessarily is not maybe perhaps having a Sunday school leading 30 people. It may not mean you're on Sunday morning, you're filling the pulpit and preaching when your pastor is out of town. That's a small minority. Uh, that's really the 1% of our people. But, you know, we need to expect our 99% of people to take the whole gospel to the whole world to make an impact. So I think I think that's in a practical way what it looks like. And that's what it meant for the disciples. That, well, it wasn't really nothing flashy. It was nothing uh, really amazing. I think it, it looked very ordinary, meeting in home churches and so forth. Uh, but, you know, if all of us in our churches, every single believers, you know, took this call seriously, I think God is going to do amazing work in our nation, in our world, uh, if we all just, you know, took, took the gospel like this, uh, seriously. You know, uh, one last thing I want to say, some people have been telling me, like, Jonathan, you're just taking this way too serious. You may need to take a little chill pill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the reality, I, I was sharing this at a conference, but the reality is that when I stand before the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, I don't think Jesus is going to chastise me by saying, Jonathan, you have taken me way too serious. The reality is that we know we notice two things, I think, in our churches. One, 
is that we don't take God serious enough. And second, we take ourselves way too serious. We talk about what kind of retirement we're going to do, what kind of vacation we're going to take, what kind of possessions we're going to buy, what we're going to acquire, and what we're going to accomplish on this earth. I don't think on that day when we stand before the Lord, we're going to regret how much we didn't invest, but we're going to regret one day that we didn't invest in that day, as Revelation says, one day every tongue, tribe, and nation, and people gather around the throne of grace, ablaze in adoration and worshiping King Jesus, who deserves all glory and worship that we gave. And you know, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, because that was our aim, to make Jesus great and known amongst the nation, not a casual nominal Christianity, but abandoning our dreams and our possession and everything in our life for that call for the gospel as we faithfully obeyed and followed him everything in our life uh, so so i think when we think about discipleship it's 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 that it's taking the gospel and obedience to king jesus and following him well that was a really good word thank you so much for taking a few extra minutes to unpack that for us just what it would look like practically speaking for the everyday christian to take on the call to make a disciple of some kind so thank you we have time for one more question so i want to invite you to do something that i ask every guest on the show to do which is to speak directly to the audience there may be someone listening to this episode who is struggling with a particular problem in their life maybe they have past hurts that haunt them and they've never told anyone about them. Perhaps they are currently caught in a sin struggle that they're ashamed about and they're worried about bringing the issue to light for other believers to see. Or maybe they've even been a Christian for a long time and they've never really taken Christ's call to become a disciple who makes disciples seriously. So they're unsure about making such a commitment. What would you say to this person to give them the courage they need to take their next steps towards seeking Christ through a discipleship relationship in their church community? Yeah, I want to just encourage all of us, all of us in this life uh, struggle, part of it because uh, we're in a sin-tainted world. It's a it's a dark world, and I have no idea, you, you know, maybe a single mother in a household with, you know, a father who's absent or a struggling dad or confused teenager and so forth, various different trials and circumstances and uh, just struggling through. Uh, but the good news is that the antidote, the solution is one, it's simple, and that is Christ. And uh, I just want to encourage you to turn to God's Word. God calls us by His grace. And, and I think so often, I think, you know, as the psalmist would say, we, we for, often forget. So we need to return or to remember that His grace is sufficient. As uh, Lamentation, I think, 3.20 says, Great is your faithfulness. Your mercy is renewed each morning. And your love, your love is everlasting. And I think that's good news. So if, you, if you're struggling today and you see no hope, it's just hopeless. Uh, you're struggling. You, you want to crawl in your misery and bitterness. And that's, that's honest and, and it's okay. Turn to the Lord. You know, turn and worship. Cast your anxiety onto Him. Look to Him. And you're struggling uh, to take the next step in your faith. Uh, look to Christ, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, through his word, be empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrecting power of Christ through for God the advocate. Uh, so I just want to encourage you, uh, hope is not found in the midst of the absence of hardship. Hope is found in the midst that God gives us grace to face tomorrow. And hope is found in the midst that God is faithful. Look to him uh, so that we can carry out the gospel to make disciples of all nations for the glory of his name. Uh, so I just want to encourage 
takes a step of obedience. You know, King Jesus is with you and he's for you. He's not against you. And he will renew your joy and his joy will become your strength. Uh, so those are just a few words of encouragement I want to give. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking the time to do that. If somebody listening today wants to get connected with you on your online platforms or any other resources that you might have available, where would you say that they can go to to connect? Yeah, so my website, it's my first and last name, jonathanhayashi.com. That, that's you know mainly a lot of, I write weekly articles or blogs. I'm a contributor, columnist, writer uh, for a variety of different things. I do a podcast monthly as well so you can find there or you know twitter instagram facebook and so forth youtube uh you'd be able to find uh, some of this information there well i will be sure to link to all of those places in the show notes so if you are interested in learning more about jonathan and his ministry go ahead and click the link in the show notes for this episode and that will take you to a page where you can get all the jonathan that you'd like (laughs) just by clicking that link so go ahead and check it out well jonathan thank you again so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today to talk about discipleship really appreciate your your wisdom and the insights and all the scriptures you offered to really build a case for why it is is such a critical component of the Christian life, especially when we're facing difficulties and and problems. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Jonathan's book and other helpful resources. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project. 